COVID-19. I have a great guest today. Absolutely unbelievable guy. One of the best players I've ever played with. The most humble. Um, before I get to him, uh, just playing a ton of golf, having some fun with some friends. Uh, I understand everyone is having a very, very trying time uh, during this time, but I think uh, the good news is right around the corner. Uh, but before I get to my next guest, just want to say, uh, I have some of the best friends in the world. We've had some of the great times during this time, um, and I hope everyone out there is being safe. My guest this week on Unfiltered with Matthew Barnaby, you can listen to it on Spotify, uh, Apple uh, Podcasts, or you can listen to it, the visual audio on MatthewBarnaby36.com. Uh, time to get to him, the best guy I've ever met. When I say that, he's just so humble and such a great player. Brian Leach, welcome to Unfiltered with Matthew Barnaby. How are you? Yeah, good to see you. Good to talk to you. I'm glad to catch up for a little bit doing this. Uh, COVID nineteen. You're you're hunkered down in Florida, I guess. Uh, you're 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 a smart man. Smart man. Yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. I had two kids that have uh, two weeks off in March, and uh, we were coming down here anyway for that break. And as soon as I, I coached my 14-year-old's team, and as soon as his sports got canceled, and my wife was already down here, and my college-age uh, uh, kid was already down here, and we said, let's go. So we came down. We were coming down anyway, and then it's two months later, we're still here. How, how is it like down there in Canada? And my, my kids, I, I can't even see them. I haven't seen my Matthew Jr. I haven't seen Taylor in 10 weeks going on. It'll be this Thursday. It's, it's hell for me because I don't get to see them. Fortunately, with FaceTime and being able to do Zoom, I'm able to see them. But how is it down there as opposed to people in Boston you talk to or people in New York? And what have you guys been doing with your time? Well, it's like fantasy land down here because of the weather. I mean, every day for the first two weeks when the kids were out of school, um, we're outside every day. They hadn't shut the beaches down yet. You know, it was a regular spring break down here. The restaurants were still open. Yeah. Then everything started closing down here. And um, we were a little bit more on a regular schedule, but we still had the nice weather. The kids started online classes again. Uh, they go from 8.30 till 2 or 9 o'clock till 2.30. Um, so they'd be busy during the day, but we could still get out, go for walks, go for a bike ride. Um come back there's uh three other of my wife's sisters down here 
with their families and the cousins. So we kind of did this as a big group, you know, dinners together, um, just staying together in our group, but much different than it would have been in the Northeast. My friends kept telling me, stay. You know, I live in Boston now. I got a lot of friends in New York. So everybody's saying like, Leachy, don't come back. Like, yeah. just stay there, stay there. Like, don't bother trying to drive back to airports. You don't want to go. Um, so it's been very fortunate on our, our, our part. None of our family's been affected by this and we've been able to enjoy some nice weather. So we feel bad for everybody that's been affected. And, you know, we are trying to get through this with everybody else. But on our individual, our selfish part has been uh, very fortunate. Yeah, I see the redness, so I'm a little sour right now, a little, a little bitter, because it, it really, today's like the first day where it's really turned a corner, and I, I've been playing golf the last five days. I think I have six rounds in the last five days, so I, I'm, I'm actually, I have my normalcy back, getting out to play golf, right. and the difference is getting out in the weather. We, we have friends that are down there, decided not to come back, and we had one friend that came back, and they're like, why the hell did I come back? Like if you, if you're confined and you stay within the parameters of it all, you're much better to be in sunny weather. If you can afford it and stay down there, you're fortunate, but it's so much better to just be able to sit outside with your family. Like you said, your group is all confined. You're together. It's fine. Right. And we're all within a floor right on the stairwell. So we're just up and down the stairs into each other's apartments and you know, there's a lot of elderly in the buildings and even my wife's uh, mother is here, but we've all been together and we try not to be around, you know, the other people that live here because we don't want to be the cause of anybody else yeah. that gets, you know, that have issues where they don't want to be exposed to others. So we've been lucky to go up and down the stairwells and go into each other's apartments and be able to, you know, that social aspect is what yeah. you realize you miss a lot of when you're in a situation like this is not being able to be physically around other people. You said the kids are back in online school. Do you have a plan on when you're going to go back and have you been playing some golf? I, I you have some of my dollars in your pocket, not that you need it, but you and mess <laughs> yeah. were certainly some crooked, very crooked, honest, the most honest people I know, but the most crooked golfers because they were <laughs> very good, much better than we were at the time. But how's the golf game? How are the kids? Are they back to some normalcy with online school? Yeah, it's been interesting for them because half of their school is live, you know, with the teacher, uh, with their fellow classmates, something like this, where there'd be 20 other people or 10 other people on the screen and they're waiting for their opportunity to talk. And then some of them are just what they have to do. They go on the computer, get their work that they've got to write in. They've got to have it turned in by this time. So they've adjusted well enough. They've only got a couple of weeks left really to get through until they're done so they've done pretty well um adjusting to that and you know the getting up early is different because some of their cousins don't have the same problem about getting up early in the morning and yeah uh so that's that's been a little issue but otherwise they've done great and they're good kids um for the golf game barney i don't know what's going on with my game like you were I brought so my good club, i brought my clubs down here too like as I figured, you know, like we're usually only here for a week or 10 days. I don't even bring my clubs down. So the, the courses did shut down for a good four weeks here, um, okay. down here. So I was just going, just going to the range and I still got back to doing that 
the last 10 days, but I can barely hit a ball right now. And I don't know what it is. I, I think it's zero flexibility, overeating, over fun. <laughs> like everything I think is conspired against me besides getting older. It's uh, very disappointing. So each day I go, I said, I'm going to go hit another, ball, uh, you know, another uh, thing of balls and see if it feels any better, but geez, it's uh it's frustrating. I got the I got the shanks about five years ago, and it's really uh, done a number on my confidence and on my game. It's it's the worst sport to lose confidence in. Like hockey, oh, yeah. you have a bad game, you shake it off, you go at it. Golf is the one thing where you replay in your head and head, and then you stand over the ball and you look at it, and it literally looks like it's that small. It's it's <laughs> it looks like it's minuscule, and your your hand eye is is so good. Um, you'll get it back. You got to play lots. I'm gonna. If you're playing really bad, let's play a thousand <laughs> on the front, thousand on the back, two thousand overall. I'll fly, right. fly myself to the Cape just to see you. It's got to be on indexes though, because mine's pretty high right now. What are you? What are you at now? I went from a three point nine to a ten point four. What? Yeah, that's how, and it's getting it's worse right now. Yeah, like I, I haven't. That, I haven't that's, played, but it's worse. That that's scary. That's scary because I I remember that I think when you were around three point nine, maybe five, like anywhere in that range, and you'd bomb the ball. You and Mess both were were so good, but I wouldn't want to take you on close to an eleven because <laughs> I could just see that three point nine, that competitive nature coming out. I'm peeling out about four or five grand into your pocket. <laughs> you, you, you talked about coaching your kid, fourteen years old. Mine's 22. It's the one thing I miss. I, I, I miss playing the game. I miss hanging with the boys on the road, having beers after the game. But the one thing I enjoyed when I did retire was coaching my kid. And I got to do that for 10 years. It was the most incredible thing. And it's the thing that I, that I, that I miss the most, the drives to the rink, the drives home. Now he's 22. I'm just hoping he's not going to make me a grandparent anytime soon. That's my, my biggest fear. Uh, how is it coaching your kid? Will this be a, a, a kid that's going to go on to Avon, follow, follow his dad to, to the Avon path? Well, it's interesting. He's my youngest. I have a 20-year-old boy and a 17-year-old girl. And they both played, but more at like a uh, house level, uh, JV level. And I coached their teams. At one point, I had four teams I was coaching. So I was in the ring seven days a week. And, you know, it sometimes it was overwhelming and you know, they're yeah. going one way you're going the other but these other two have moved on to their school playing my oldest doesn't play anymore so just having the one team with my 14 year old and he's doing pretty well and it's been really exciting like their team plays out of boston and had made the nationals so we were disappointed when everything got canceled at the end their team was just having one of those years where Everything was going well. He was playing well. So um, we don't know. He's kind of in a school that's uh, like a prep. It is basically a prep school. It's a private school, but no boarding. He's uh, in that league that they yeah. play the uh, independent school league. But he's, he was in eighth grade this past year. He'll move up to a freshman. And we'll see. You know, at that age, as you know, it's hard to project and it's hard to tell. And But he's doing well. He really enjoys it. Uh, plays soccer and lacrosse too so uh it's fun to watch them but 
it's it's much easier only having one team to coach during the week. It's unbelievable. Where was Nationals supposed to be this year? Was supposed to be in uh, Michigan. We were supposed to go to. Um, was it in Troy? Oh, no, uh, no, it wasn't in. It was in. Uh, name another. It used to be a minor league team there, and uh, I can't think of it right now. But okay. That was that was back in April. You know, the beginning or yeah. the beginning. Middle of March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding, right? Yeah. Like, time just stood still. I didn't literally, I really feel like it's kind of a blessing. You learn, like, not what's important. I think we all can figure that out. But sometimes, like, just being around, we, I, I, I see people now out and people that are spending so much time with their families that might not have before, which is a blessing for those guys in disguise. I want to talk about Avon a little bit because I was looking at your stats. Like, obviously, a Hall of Famer and, and just an unbelievable defense when you 102 points in the national hockey league is absolutely asinine for me to think that a defenseman and, and I got to play with you. Um, but I looked at your numbers at Avon and it's a damn good hockey league. Like it's, it's damn good hockey. That prep hockey is, is very good. 76 points in 26 games, 84 points in 28 games. At what point did you know that NHL was was in your future. Like for me, I was I was a grinder. I never knew if I could play in the National Hockey League. Very fortunate, very lucky. Had to do it a different way. But when I look at those gaudy numbers, when did you realize, okay, I, I'm better than the other kids? Um, not that you would ever portray it because you, you're, like I said, the most humble superstar along with Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier that I've ever met in my life. But when did you realize, okay, maybe I can make a career and maybe make some dough with this? Well, I think those high school years, confidence-wise, uh, were a big thing for me, for sure. Like being able to—I was always the third or fourth best player on my youth hockey teams, or sometimes further down. They were—I played up a year, and so you were always scrapping and trying to, you know, get up with those top couple guys. And then in high school, I kind of made that jump. So in Connecticut, where I grew, grew up, we really had nobody to compare ourselves with. It wasn't anybody going on to the NHL. It didn't look like something we even thought about. You know, the 1980 Olympic team was the biggest thing that we yeah. thought about was maybe being an Olympian. So I think by my senior year, when central scouting starts coming out with their projections of where people are going to be drafted and uh, teams are calling you up and, saying we'd like to send a scout down just to interview you and take you out to dinner. And so it, it, it's not like the combines they have now. It's yeah. not the inten intensive off-ice stuff that they go through everything. They just want to get to know you as a person. And, and it was usually an area scout. It wasn't like they sent their whole staff to interview you and get it, a feel for how you were as a player. So by my senior year, I was projected – from late in the first round to early in the second round. And I just think to myself, I'm like, if I get drafted in the first round, I'm going to have a chance to go to an NHL training camp. Like even if I'm not good enough to make it, I'm going to have a chance to go to training camp. And so that's when I started thinking about it, but I never thought of making the jump right away. I knew I wasn't ready. The 88 Olympic team was really something that I saw that was a possibility. I knew the players that I was competing against to make that team 
that were U.S. players that I'd played with and against, and I thought I fit in with that group. And so I was really focused on uh, trying to make that jump first. And then the NHL, if I was ready, would be there. I knew I'd have that opportunity. Did you bankrupt your parents wearing all that tape around your ankles? That, that's what I got to know. Because <laughs> between you and Alexei Kovalev, I've never <laughs> seen two players use so much tape right. on their ankles. Obviously, an elite, elite skater. Kobe was not bad himself, but how much did you always use that much tape around those damn ankles? Because you know what they call us now, right? If you use that kind of tape, they call us benders. Because I, I, I wore the plastic <laughs> around. You wore the white tape. My right. dad's like, my my son's like, you're a bender. Why you like? Our our skates weren't stiff enough. We we right. had we needed that for for our safety. Did you bankrupt your damn parents, the nicest people in the world? Uh, no, it was. I think it was payback. For like all those years, I wore straps around my pads and nothing on my ankles and never had a new pair of skates. You know, I had to get used pair of skates all the time. And I was always a step behind, you know, going from the different blade jump ups and I had to use skates. So um, I was so used to having the benders and everything that <laughs> when I, when the new skates, when I finally got into new skates, I'm like, these things are so stiff. Like I can't wear them. And so when I finally broke them in, I couldn't go to a new, like I was happy during the year to use them, but you would, like you would say, you'd break down your ankles there. Yeah. And where, when you pushed off, you know, there would be no support there. So I would just keep taping and taping, as you know, like Mets could put on a new pair of skates right after warmups and go out there and play the game and still be the best player. Yeah. I wore the same pair of skates all year long. And then the following year, you know, I'd, I'd wear a pair a little bit in practice and then through the summer. And then I'd try and change to that next pair the following year and use that the whole year. So, you know, you know, Casio Marks, our, oh, our yeah. equipment trainer. In the New best. York, he, he would sew my skates up. He would shoe polish them and everything to try and keep them stiff. And then I would tape them up, you know, so that I had support. But one pair, one pair of skates a year. Yeah, I, I was two pair of skates, and I remember when I got traded in New York, and I, I'm with Mass and, and the guys, and I'm looking, and like day three, like new pair of skates, you can usually tell like a guy like take it easy on them, like if it's defensive, you don't want to burn them, like breaking in new skates, right? I look at Mass, so I'm kind of like whatever doing a drill. I'm like, okay, he's probably gonna be. I'm like, how the fuck is he flying? Like, what, what the? And then I see like two days later. Another company's got another pair of skates. Right. Another two yeah. days later, he went through like thirty pairs of skates. I go, is this guy like torture? Like, is he just playing with us? Like, he's he's so good that he has to wear a different to make it like an even playing field. It's the weirdest thing in the world I ever saw. No, and how about changing the blade? You know, over just a little bit in between periods, and then going out there and skating. Like, I'd have to skate on that change for a week or two weeks. Yeah. you know, before I felt comfortable on it. it yeah, crazy. He, He'd call the trainer over and he'd move it over and then he'd go in the rivets. There had to be 60 rivet holes in that oh, skate, yeah. but it didn't matter because he was getting a new pair the next day. And, exactly. and go, it's, it's, it's the most ridiculous thing I, I, I had ever seen. You, you talked about USA hockey, the 80 Olympic team. It, it certainly changed probably their dynamic for young kids. It really did. I'm Canadian. I can tell you. I never thought of the Olympics because the best players didn't play there when I was a kid. So 
for me, it was the Stanley Cup. It was Wayne Gretzky, and, and I was a Montreal Canadiens fan. I never heard of the 80 Olympic Miracle on Ice team. Now I moved to the United States, and I have Pat LaFontaine and talking with him and everything. And now you realize it's probably the greatest sports achievement of all time in that team playing against who they did and then propelling it to what you guys took it to. And now where it is with USA Hockey, the trickle of down effect from that 80 team, you guys, and now where they are today, you guys winning a World Cup. But speak of that USA Hockey and that, that pride you have as an American, but also being a part of a generation that took it to the next level as well. Yeah, and, and I go back to growing up in Connecticut, and the NHL was just something you played in your driveway. It wasn't something you ever, you know, thought about actually doing on the ice and being a part of. There were very few Americans, you know, in the NHL at that time. Um, we just never had anything to compare it with. We didn't, you know, the next town over didn't have an NHL player. The next town over didn't have an NHL player. Like some of the Boston areas had a few. Some of the Minnesota area had a few, but where I was, there was nobody to really compare to. And then, you know, I was at a tournament. Our Connecticut team was in a tournament in Massachusetts, and the game was not shown live, uh, the Soviet game. And our parents started getting word that um, what was happening and that they were going to be playing it later. And so they got us all together in the hotel room. And we had no idea what was going on. We were just happy, you know, like you'd play ball hockey in the yeah. in the hallways and you'd be running around. And we were happy to be in a hotel room together. And they got us in. They explained a little bit and they said, listen, this is one of the biggest underdog stories. Like you've got to really root for the U.S., even though they had been getting reports and people had been calling and saying, you got to turn this on when it comes on. So we watched it whenever the U.S. scored, you know, We'd be jumping on the two beds and throwing the pillows around, but we didn't understand at that moment that it was really what it was. But each year that we grew up, you know, I went from a 12 year old to a 13 year old to a 14 year old. And then they start preparing for the Olympics four years later. You start to learn a little bit about politics, about what's really going on outside of just a hockey game. Yeah. And it became, it became bigger and bigger. Uh, each year I was removed from actually watching the game. And as I watched my progression in hockey and I followed some of those players and Chris Chelios was on the 84 team and he was a player all of a sudden that came to my attention as a defenseman. And I started watching his career where it went from there. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I was looking at my age and where I could be. I'm like, I might be able to be just like these guys. You know, but it still wasn't the NHL. It was like, I might be able to be like a U.S. Olympian. It wasn't like I could yeah. be an NHL player. So, like, the NHL for you and the Stanley Cup was like it was for me in the Olympics. I thought that might be a chance. But the NHL at that early stages were like, no chance. We'll just go play that in the driveway. You, you play with so many great players, so many great American players uh, on those teams, the Hullies, the Chellies. Again, funny guys, great guys, unbelievable teammates, warriors. You also got to share that experience with a guy you also won a Stanley Cup with in, in Mike Richter, a guy that was dominant in 94 when you guys won a Stanley Cup. But 
also great in 96 when you guys won. Talk about your relationship with uh, Mike and just all those guys. I mean, it, we think in Canada and, and Canadians are always going to think it, it's our game. It's our game, Canada. But I, I know that rivalry really took effect when you guys, it still wasn't a rivalry in 80 when they, when they, when they beat the Russians and when they won the gold medal, it still wasn't a rivalry for Canada. Now, every time they strap it on, it's a rivalry. And that's because of your generation, you guys, you, Shelly, Billy Garens, Mike Richter, uh, all those guys. How are those guys as teammates and the bond you guys formed and taking that to the next step? Well, I think that's the beauty of uh, Canadians loving the sport so much is they didn't care if you were the underdog. Like, they're still going to beat you down. Like, they're not going to treat you any different than when you have a better team or when you have a worse team. Like, they are going to win and they have the pride and they're not coming in to be soft on you anytime. So I was on a number of teams where if our goalie didn't make 45, 48 saves and we got a lucky bounce or a power play goal, you know, we weren't going to win that game. And we went into a lot of games knowing that. So I think as we got to those mid nineties and a group of players started to arrive on the NHL scene and, you know, we had Chelios, who already was established, Brett Hull. We were thankful that he played for the U.S. and not for <laughs> Canada. <laughs> so, he, thank goodness that was the one thing the Canadian fans made sure that uh, to push him our way early. So, that, <laughs> that, really, that, that really helped. And then we'd always seem to have some good goaltending and, you know, Richter, Barrasso, Van Beesbrook. So, we could put some goalies in net that could keep us in games. But now we started to add some size with the skill. We weren't just small guys running for our lives, trying to score on the power play. And um, the young guys that came into the league, Dougie Waite, Tony Amante, you know, Jeremy Roenick, um, they became pretty top players on their teams and came with an attitude. So it was an interesting locker room when you would go and there was a lot of FUs about the other team and like we're not losing this one and we're going at these guys and uh, it was an interesting dynamic and when you looked around you said yeah we stack up pretty well I mean, it's not Messier Gretzky you know right yeah. down the line but you know we've got a good young team here guys that are competitors and that can play and you know those tournaments they're they're quick they're yeah three and a half four week tournaments so you have your training camps, you have a bunch of screwballs that go out and have fun together and you bond quickly and yeah. all, all of a sudden you're into the games and, you know, against Canada, we had a bunch of warm-up games and there were fights in 96 and guys were going at it and, you know, Claude Lemieux fighting to Chuck and John, Le John LeClaire and, and Eric Lindros are, are tied up together and, you know, we had a, a lot of characters that, you know, were like, no, this is this is our time. So still took a lot of good fortune for us to uh, haul it out, having to win two in Canada. But we got some good bounces when we needed it in that third game. But it was that type of attitude. And then, you know, USA Hockey has continued to do the grassroots, which Canada has pretty much had going for a lo lot longer time. And USA Hockey worked with a lot of the Team Canada 
officials with how they went about the grassroots program and introducing it to places that it wasn't familiar with and how you go about that. So the more kids that you give an opportunity to, to play, the more chance that you have that that player develops and loves it and they become a lifelong player. Still too expensive for the average person. We're trying to work on that so we can get more yeah. people involved and some great athletes involved that maybe can't afford to play. And hopefully we can figure out a better way to get even more people. And I believe if we do that, states will be um, not only uh, on par, but could be a dominant, dominant factor because uh, just the pure size uh, uh, of the United States, 1994, um, crazy year. You guys make lots of changes. Um, you have Mike Keenan as your coach. Neil Smith is the general manager. You make changes during the year, right before the deadline. Everyone's dream is to win a Stanley Cup when you're in the National Hockey League. It's the pinnacle. I never had the opportunity to win one. I, I admire, I am envious um, of everyone that's had a chance to win it. It's something that you carry on with you for the rest of your life. Talk about that team, um, the experience, everything that that team was, because it wasn't always just roses with that team, I know, um, especially with a guy like Mike Keenan at the helm. But um, certainly those memories and that bond you are going to form with those guys the rest of your life is something pretty special. Yeah, it really is. And um, we don't have a lot of opportunities, you know, to get back together. And the few that we have, I know you've probably gotten back together with, teams in Buffalo and elsewhere and it doesn't change a lot like it doesn't change that much from the locker room and a lot of the same personalities are there and just the way we're just all a little heavier <laughs> we all we're all There's we all a, put on the freshman 20 at 50 yeah. years old <laughs> you look pretty good Barney but there are some people that swell up like me that go uh <laughs> yeah <another> right direction <laughs> I always say but, I, yeah. I work out a little bit just so I don't look like Rob Ray. That's all. It's the only reason I work out, so I can always look just a little bit better than Razor. Well, at least you got it in on this one, too. <laughs> um, yeah, it was a great year. I mean, for me, it was, it was really interesting because Mike Keenan did come in, and um, his reputation was definitely to move players that had been there a while and hadn't won. And so he could, quote, bring in his guys. And, you know, we had one of the all-time winningest players already there in Mark Messier, an unquestioned leader. And Mike hadn't won a Stanley Cup at that point either. He'd been to the couple finals um, at that stage. So um, he was really trying to, to, to move me out of there at different times during the year. And Neil Smith, uh, thank goodness, was a guy that just kept saying, he never told me this till later, but he goes, no, I'm not moving him. You know, I'm not moving him. But Mike would bring me in. And so as well as we were doing, we were in first in the league for a lot of the year. Um, but I had a lot of interesting meetings with Mike, you know, that, um, that, that, that didn't make you feel comfortable, like that you were going to be on that team. Not really with your play, just that, you know, he was looking to, to move you out of there. And and I have to bring up, since this has all ended and Mike's hasn't been coaching and we've been together and worked together on TV and done stuff, like Mike and I get along now. But uh, 
he doesn't remember it quite like I do, but he doesn't remember a lot of what went on quite the same way as the players did. But because uh, I, I, I hear stories from different guys, and it's more like you say rather than maybe the way Mike remembers it. Because I, right. I I've talked to Stefan Matteau, I've I've talked to different guys that played on that team, and it's more of those buttons he was trying to push or try to have it his way, and it all worked out. But I had said I had heard. It wasn't all roses with that team, and he almost made some mistakes that could have cost the Stanley Cup. Yeah, and we were so, so fortunate with the, the leadership group that we had there. Obviously, starting with Mark, you know, he's the best leader that I've been around and been able to witness how he goes about including everybody. But, you know, the additions we made late, and we still went through things in the playoffs, but we had Kevin Lowe there, you know, we had Craig McTavish, you know, they brought in Glenn Anderson for all the stories you've heard about it. Andy, like he's still a winner and a pain in the ass to play against and like tough as nails, like in a mean way, like the yeah. way he played and he played a different role than he did in Edmonton, but he played an important part of that team. But we had guys that had seen a lot of crazy stuff over the years and one and so they were able to kind of always settle us down and say all right let's relax you know have maybe the leadership group with mike and have the little get-togethers and they did a great job and it was still like you said you've heard the stories it still was you know it was it was one of those rides where we felt good about it but you never knew what was going to happen the next day and never knew it was going to be in the paper um <laughs> what was going on so and here in new york city and all the press that was going on there wasn't all the online uh social media and everything it was all printed yeah it was all what you what y'all that you read the next day so as soon as you got up in the morning and grabbed the paper you're like oh boy here we go again but <laughs> it's like riding a roller coaster without a seatbelt on you can get to the <laughs> end but you better fucking hold on all right that's that's a good way to put it I, 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 you're such an unbelievable player, unbelievable leader, great guy. I look at Mass and I look at both of you just in being in that dressing room for three years. And, and we didn't have success on the teams that I play with. And it's one of the things that I, I don't have regrets because you're always trying to win. There was different dynamics that went on. But when you look at Mark Messier and you won a Stanley Cup with him, obviously one of the greatest players that have ever played the game. What makes him such a great leader? I always look at him and you try to find ways you can, I look at everyone in any different facet, whether it's a doctor and how I can make myself a little bit better at what I do or who I am, if I can be a better dad. And I look at a dad on, you always try to make yourself better. What makes Mark Messier the leader that you said is the best that you've ever played with? You know, I've been, I've been asked that a lot and, I'm glad you didn't ask me the one question there. Like, give us a few examples, you know, give us a few examples. I'm like, yeah, it's so hard to do. Cause I'd say it's uh, his consistency and the way he approaches every day when he comes to the ring, he's not a different person, you know, after a loss versus after a win, he comes where it's back to work. Um, he doesn't decide after a five game winning streak when he's had 10 points to invite the training staff and everybody out to dinner this is going on from a day-to-day -day basis whether you're winning or you're losing it's trying to build 
that atmosphere where, and he did it to me, is he didn't have to tell me whether I played a good game or a bad game. He made me feel like I let him down when I didn't play well. He made everybody create self-accountability. And I, I try and tell everybody that's the greatest sign of a leader is going about your business day to day, working hard in practice, being consistent in your approach, getting everybody as a group. And then when you have a bad game or you you went out the night before and you had a bad practice and he's looking at you, and you're like, okay, you don't have to say anything. I already know I let you down today. Like, <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take that one on myself. Like, and I feel bad. Like, I don't need to say it. To him, he doesn't need to say it to me. It's about self-responsibility and trying to create create that in the group. And the trainers felt the same way. You know, the doctors felt the same way. But because they felt part of a team, yeah, they felt like we were all in this together. So that's the best way I can say it. I mean you have to be able to go out in the ice and perform and you've got to be able to back your teammates up. But, you know, like an example with you, Barney, is I, I remember watching him going to talk to you and saying, listen, do not fight this guy tonight. Yeah. Like you can, you can only hurt our team. Yeah. Like this, this guy is not the guy go after this guy, you know, like that's the guy and we want you to drive him nuts today. Yeah. You know, and, and sometimes you do it and sometimes the wires would snap. And you'd go fight the guy we told you not to fight. Oh, yeah. And and you'd come back with your head down and you'd be like, sorry, sorry. You know, like, sorry. You're like, Barney, you don't have to say sorry. You just stood up for your teammates. But that's not what we need you to do. Yeah. You know, but you you felt it, too. You know, you're like, I know you told me not to do that. But you're such a hardo with the uh, thing. You were like, I, I can't I can't back down. I can't back down. And, but and, I remember, I remember watching those uh, things go on. That absolutely, and that's that's the respect I think when you when you have someone, and, and again, you, you do you feel like if you care, there are there are right. guys that you play yeah. with, and I'm never going to mention names of I. Yeah, hundred percent. There's there's guys I like that didn't care if we won or lost, and you could tell. It's it's you know when someone cares about you and the team. And, and they're able to talk to you. That, that's the difference is people that don't care or, or are one way, they do it behind your back. The ones that care and care for the team say it right to your face. And you, you might even have arguments sometimes. You, you might have battles and that's, that's okay. You're not, you're not always going to get along to have championship teams or good teams or be a good player. You're going to have arguments along the way. And that's, that's the one thing I'd, I respect it from you and, and certainly from Mess because I, I played on his line for a little bit there. Poor guy. One of the best players to ever play with, and he, he got me on his line. Hey, you win. Yeah, but you had good years for us, Barney. You know, like it, good, it, good it, it was good. I never wanted to leave. I love New York so much. Hey, I can never live down. I got, I got traded. What was his name? Dano Seeger. That's right. The Birdman. I remember Glenn say there, he goes, I made a lot of fucking trades in my life, Barney. You're one of my best. <laughs> the point is, it's not because you're a great player. We just traded a shitty player for you. <laughs> the guy liked his bird more than our team. I got traded for five players, uh, Barney, and I don't think any of them played for more than a year or two. So don't feel so bad. I wanted to ask you that. How was that conversation? Because I knew the lockout was coming, as did you. 
in 04 going into 05. You go to Toronto, but you knew going up, and I'm sure they, I'm sure your conversations were much different than I was, but I had conversations with them, and I knew I was going to either Toronto, Boston, or Colorado. So I, I kind of knew which way I was going. First of all, how were those conversations, and how hard was it for you to leave New York, the only team that you ever played for? You went to Toronto, you tore it up. I think you had like 15 points in 15 games when you went there. But how was that decision? Because it must have been really hard to leave New York where you just spent your whole career there since you really became a, went from being a kid to being a man and then going off to not only another team, but shipping you off to Canada. Yeah, well, the difference between yours and mine was I didn't have any of those conversations. So I, that's one of the reasons that it was uh, so upsetting at the time. And uh, obviously is dulled over, over the years, but uh, very disappointing. You know, the way it happened, I got traded on my birthday, my 36th birthday um, when I was in Boston. So that was kind of the biggest shock about not having any conversations, but you know, the, the trade part, like I, I'd been part of being on a team where so many players had gotten traded, Mark Messier, Wayne Gretzky. So it was never the trade. Uh, it was always not knowing that I was actually going to be moving. So that was uh, the difficult part. The flip side of it that was uh, such a bonus was going to Toronto. It was such a great experience, like a veteran team that I went to. Yeah. Um, a hockey, a hockey mad city. Uh, I was in a, a honeymoon phase by the media because Glenn Healy, who was on the 94 team, was working in the media. Uh, Nick Kiprios was in the media working. Right. Neil Smith was doing guest, Neil Smith was doing guest commentary in the media. So if I didn't play well, we didn't really focus on that. But if I played well, those guys always made sure to mention it. And I was only there for the short time. And we had some high hopes in the playoffs. We ended up losing in the second round to Philly. But it was um, an awesome, awesome experience. The, the organizations run very similar to the Rangers, where they treat the teams, the players so well. Everything's provided. Ownership was right there supporting you. So that whole part was um, – a real eye opener in a such a great way, and the team was team was awesome. We had a great mix of veteran guys, so there were two extremes. You know, the trade was very upsetting, but then the acceptance and the the team that I went to was awesome. Let let, let me clarify my conversations. There were probably more <laughs> with John Rassico and Darren Blake. And I knew I was getting fucking traded. It was no secret. I wasn't offered a contract. So my conversations were probably not as in-depth as I'm maybe alluding to. And my age is going, all right, here's where you're going. Uh, I, the writing was on the wall. All right. Well, at least, at least you had some. <laughs> I, I just wanted a contract at the time. I was like, okay, Bob Goodnow, which I called him at about midnight, hammered one night. I'm like, Bob. I'm a poker player. Do we really want to lock out here? We're going against billionaires. And here's one thing is we're not winning this one. I can promise you. Um, so, yeah, we lost out. I, I don't hate Bob Goodnow. We all did very well by him. But I still get sour 
every time I hear the name, I'm like, I want my $2 million back. I can really, you know, after a divorce, I could use that 2 million and not split it up. I wish I could get it post-divorce. Be much, much, much better. Yeah, I, I had another year on my deal too. So I was looking forward to going back to Toronto and I think they were pretty much gonna bring most of that team back depending on how the new CBA went. So we were looking forward to it. We knew we had a, a, a good team even though we had another year or maybe you know that next year would have been it because of the way guys were, were aging out of the league. But uh, the money part hurt as well. Your, your, your last year was in Boston. Obviously, you live, you're from the area, Connecticut, you've been Boston guy, you still have the place in the Cape, I'm guessing, right? Yeah. Still have the place in the Cape. Yeah. How was playing in Boston? That, that must have been pretty cool. You, you played in Connecticut and then obviously played a year at Boston College. Uh, how was it playing for the Bruins? Yeah, it was, it was another good experience, except for the way the, the season went out. You know, it was a lot like when we were in New York where we were in every game, but we'd lose every game, 3-2, 4-2, go to work the next day and be like, okay, we're going to win. So you're always fighting for that you're in 10th or 9th or 8th. So the season didn't go as we wanted. They traded Joe Thornton during the year. Um, I got injured. I hurt my knee. So we had just had our third child at the beginning of the year. And I knew I didn't want to be moving around because of having a young family. And uh, Boston worked out perfectly in that regard. I had friends in the area. Um, The year off really hurt me, to be honest. Uh, My wife was pregnant. I didn't want to go play in in Europe. Um, I had two young children. So I was skating during that uh, off time, like I'm sure you were. But I was only skating three or four times a week. You know, we were playing the pickup games, you're doing your training off the ice, then they cancel the season. So I was always been a player that I need to play games. Even in training camp, I always wanted to play four to six games, five to seven games um, to get myself ready. That's on top of skating beforehand. So even though I did all that in the summer, when I got back with the Bruins, now I'm 37 years old, you know, Joe Thornton's threading me passes and I'm tipping it over the net instead of <laughs> into the net. And the pass that I'm making is, you know, a, a, a three inches ahead of you or where, you know, the things like my head was still working the same way, but that time not playing took me a while to catch up. And then I had the injury. And so it was frustrating in that way, but it was another great organization. Like, you hear different stories about organizations, but yeah, I enjoyed everything there. You know, it was my third original six teams. So when you go on the road, there's Bruins fans there, just like Toronto fans, just like Ranger fans, wherever you go. And um, all the alumni that were around the team, Johnny Busick, the chief was traveling with us all the time. And, you know, the guys I got to see around the Bruins was great. So Another good experience, just like at the end of it when we missed the playoffs again, and I knew they were kind of, they fired the, the the management team and they were going in a different way and I knew I'd have to play somewhere else. That's when I started thinking about uh, maybe it's time. I know I can play, but like maybe it's time to just kind of shut it down. 
a couple more before I let you go. So gracious with your time, as always. Um, Stanley Cup champion, Hall of Famer, uh, Brian Leach joins me on Unfiltered with Matthew Barnby. I wanted to ask you, when you, no one sets out, I don't think, to, to be a Hall of Famer. You set out to be the best you can be every single day. You hope to win a Stanley Cup. You hope to play in the Olympics. You hope to do so many things. But you, you just want to be the best you can be every single day and let the chips fall where they may. How was that when you got the phone call that you were going into the Hall of Fame, the, the Holy Grail, and um, just that whole experience? Yeah, it was uh, more emotional than I expected it to be because I, I, was, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was driving back to my place in Boston and I saw a 416 number come up and I knew that the decision or the announcement for that year, and that was my first year of eligibility, was coming up in those next few days. So, you know, it, it didn't matter to me in one way if I didn't get the call because I was so happy that people were bringing my name up and I didn't really want to get into people fighting for you or against you because I hate to do that for good players where they're saying you shouldn't be a Hall of Famer or you should be. And, you know, I, I, I agree with it. everything you said about trying to be your best and you're so happy with some of the players you get to play with and the relationships you get to make on the way. But when I saw the 416 number, I'm like, I pulled over and I said, do you think they call to tell you you're not in or are they only calling to tell you you are in? And so I pulled over and I took the call and it was Pat Quinn um, who was on the phone. And it was one of those where you, those weird feelings where the blood kind of leaves you, you know, and you listen and you kind of similar to how I got traded when I got traded, all the blood left me in a bad way. This was like a good, a good feeling um when I got the call and so it's a short conversation and I just kind of sat there and I said holy cow like that is amazing that's just amazing thing something like you said that doesn't go through your mind like like when I think of the hall of fame I think it really should be Bobby Orr and Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky and Marcel Dion and Guy Lafleur like guys that we looked up to and some of them that we were lucky enough to play with or play against Mario Lemieux and like, you feel like it's just like, I still feel like the hall of fame should have this different wing for players like that. And then for other players. So I know I'm not in the same group of players that the ones I mentioned, but it feels nice to be included in that group and to say, ah, I guess I'm, I'm part of the club, but I know I'm not really part of your club. I know you guys have a separate club. You are part of that club. And the difference between you and I, I see a 416 number, Leachy, and I miss it. I'm like, fuck, where did I leave my credit card? What bar was it at last night? Someone's calling me to come get it back. That's better than a 212. You won't get it back there. 212, definitely not getting it back. Someone's running up for 20 grand in New York. Right. Um, Shut that thing bill. down. Yeah, without a doubt. Last one before I let you go again. Thank you. And uh, please say hi to Mary Beth and everyone. Just just unbelievable people in my three years there. You guys were more than gracious. 
Adam Graves, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Um, he's up there with my Brian Leeches. I remember going to uh, the players' meetings in Whistler. No one would sit with a young Matthew Barnaby. Everyone hated me. I felt like everyone was just staring at me and wanted to throw darts at my head because of things I said. Only guy to come sit at my table is Adam Graves. I've got to know him after, um, during my career and after. Just an unbelievable guy, unbelievable player. Um, what does he mean to Brian Leach? What does he mean to the New York Rangers and that team to, won, that, to win? It's always um, such a hard question because, you know, I, I, I love talking about Adam, but there's no way to explain. Like, no matter what I say, I'm not a good enough speaker to actually explain what a great man Adam Graves is. Never mind the hockey player. The guy that ran into the corner after you when you ran me, you know, the guy that stood up for me at every, the guy that took all the cross checks at the back, front of the net so that I could have success, you know, the teammate that was always there for you, you know, his family, like all of that. But when you watch him on a day-to-day a -day basis, uh, the amount of people that he helps and doesn't ask for a thing, and he gives so much of himself. It's There's nothing fake about Adam Graves. He is the most genuine person that I've ever met. When he laughs with you, it's a genuine laugh. Like he's having fun hanging out with you. When he gives you a pat in the back or he sees you doing something and says, hey, why don't you head to bed? I'm going to bed. Why don't you head to bed too? I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, Adam. You know, everything, it's all so genuine. You know, there's not one part about him that's trying to be somebody different. And I think that's probably the hardest thing we all go through. We always go through these insecurities about ourselves as people. I don't see any of it with him. He knows who he is. Uh, he knows what type of person he wants to be. He was raised like that and he's continued to the legacy of his mom and dad. But I wish I was a better speaker to be able to explain, you know, like in a short amount of time, but he is a special, special man. And, He's working with the Rangers like I am on an advisory role, and he's around a lot. So we get to spend a lot of time during the year together, and it's still a lot of fun. You know, I get the big bear hug and the, the slap on the shoulder, and we compare who's put more weight on and what what size our, our waist we're wearing right now or if you have the top button undone. Uh, we go through all the funny things that uh, you would go through as friends, and then we just go out and – we're talking about work, about some of the players, you know, he's still got a, his fingers on, you know, his, his pulse of really what a young kid today needs to be like to be successful. Times have changed, but he still understands through talking to him and trying to express the right way to go about living your life and becoming an NHL player and being a team player. And he's able to get that across without making you feel like he's talking down to you. He's talking to you like an equal. So um, just a special, special man. You want to feel a little smaller around somebody, you go talk to Adam. And I, and I only mean that in a good way because of how much I elevate him as a person and, um, you know, about the way he handles himself. But great guy, and I'm glad you brought his name up, Barney. You said it very adequately because he really is. He's the salt of the earth. He's got those – 
big farmer hands oh, do when he slaps yeah. you. And I always told him, I said, I wish, I wish I saw you coming into the rink in the Madison Square Garden when we play you. And if you wore those nerdy little glasses back then, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't have been intimidated fighting you. Then I get those meat cleavers punching my face. Oh, his, his, his ankles and wrists were just enormous, you know, like big, big thing. They're like yours and mine calves, you know, like <laughs> you, you and I used to have the calf off to see who had the smallest calves. These are ridiculous. There's, I, I, play, I played 36 today, played, played early, and literally they're so white. So, I, again, you, you have some color. Mine are white and so skinny. I, Yags used to, Yager used to always joke around with both of us, but I get in the shower. He goes, you look like a chicken. Like, how the, how the fuck do you play in the National Hockey League with those legs? And he'd come in with these beasts. That ass of his just waddling oh. around like oh yeah yeah big ass and big legs and just you know six foot four and he'd be looking at you like how do you play how do you play with those things oh yeah I'm like well I I, I only play seven minutes I don't I don't need, I don't need much you guys are playing thirty and thirty five minutes like I can play seven minutes throwing a fight here and there a lot when did you guys move down like when did guys get to live downtown because we had always heard all the guys live outside because everyone's fearful, but you lived downtown your whole career, right? Yeah. I, well, at the beginning of the career, I lived uh, with a family for uh, one year. And then uh, during that year and a half, like Phil Esposito was there um, as general manager and Michelle Bergeron was the coach. But uh, there were a lot of trades going on. A lot of the young guys moving, a lot of the older guys moving. Uh, a lot of moving parts. Um, the next year, like they, they, uh, Phil Esposito fired Michelle Bergeron with four games left in the season. We lost, and he went down to coach. We lost those four games. We got swept in the playoffs, and then he got fired. So we had no coach, no GM. And I looked at my agent and I said, "Man, I gotta try living in the city because you weren't allowed to live in the city at that time." I said, before I get traded out of here, everybody's getting traded. <laughs> so he goes, all right, let's go look. And so I found a little one bedroom on the Upper West Side and bought it. And then they hired Neil Smith. And then Neil Smith hired Roger Nielsen. And then they found out that I was living downtown. And they said, well, we're, we'll just buy out his two-month lease or whatever it is. My agent says, no, he's got a mortgage. Like, he's living there. Um, so they made it hard on me for that first year that I was living there. I had to drive up practices when we were at the airport. I had to go up to the practice rink outside the city and drive back in. And there was nothing that I could do that was easier. And then Mark Messier got traded and then things started to change. And Mess was like, he rented right away on 57th street. And he used to land at LaGuardia and he used to go, what do we just grab a cab lychee? And I said, no, we got to go on the bus up to, you know, 40 minutes, grab our car and drive back in 35 minutes. He goes, what? Because I can see my apartment. It's right up there on the skyline. And so then he talked to the coaches. And so that's when it all started. Mark uh, got it to be okay to move in. And then Mike Richter moved in and uh, another year or two later. And then guys just slowly started trickling in, you know, depending on your team. 
A lot of times the Rangers team was older and guys wanted to have houses yeah. and be out near the practice rink. Um, but then as it went younger and guys were starting families, they didn't mind, you know, when they, they didn't have their kids in school or having to travel as much. It was more convenient in the city. So it all started from there. And then I, you know, I, I didn't sell my place. Even when I was in Boston, I kept it for a couple of years and, I was uh, 19 years a New York City resident. Was was New York the perfect spot for a Brian Leach who doesn't like to be in the limelight? He goes and does his work and can get away. Like in Toronto, Brian Leach can't walk down the street. In Boston, can't walk down the street. Anywhere in Canada in a lot of markets, can't walk. That That's not you. You like to do your work. You like to be with the guys. You like to be with your family was New York the perfect spot for you to be able to do your job then get away with it and then be the family guy yeah you're one of the first people to kind of phrase it like that everybody looks at how I grew up in a smaller town in Connecticut and you know say oh it must have been hard you went to Boston College and then all of a sudden you're thrust into New York City and um, I, I agree with exactly what you're saying I didn't stand out physically you know, five foot 11, you know, 185 pounds, you know, there's nobody that's picking you out unless they're a yeah. hockey fan. Um, wasn't until Mess came along and you're hanging out with him that people would be like, who's that guy hanging out with Messier? Um, <laughs> but yeah, and as a single guy for a lot of those early years, you can, you get your dry cleaning. You know, I lived in a condo building. Your dry cleaning gets dropped off. You order from the corner deli, you know, they're like, yeah, Mr. Brian, what do you want? I'm like, oh, peanut butter, toilet paper, <laughs> uh, milk, bread. And they're like, okay, I'll be right up there. All deliveries are free. Like, I lived over a movie theater, so I could go see movies after practice if, when no one was living in there. Uh, the convenience was awesome. The um, being able to walk around, people watch, uh, all of that was just perfect for me at the right time of my life and in my career. And so we just, you know, you, you lucky enough to play there so long. So I stayed in the same building for the whole time, went from a one bedroom to a two bedroom to a three bedroom as my life changed. And to three apartments, tearing down walls and combining <laughs> them, but you won't say yeah. it. I will. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of small apartments in New York city. A lot of small apartments. <laughs> Leachy, thanks so much for joining me. Um, gracious with your time. I'm going to say it one last time, only because you will never, ever say it, and I want people to know it again. 1,028 points in the National Hockey League. Calder Trophy winner, two Norris trophies, Hall of Famer, Stanley Cup champion, and one of the greatest 100 players of all time. And, oh, yeah, first American to ever win a Conn Smythe. You're the salt of the earth. I'm glad your handicap is high. I want you to get it really low and I want you to play really shitty. And when that happens, send me a text. Right. I will rent the jet. I will come see you in the Cape and I'll take some of that money you made. But uh, thank you. Please give your wife a big hug, a big kiss. Take care of those kids. Enjoy Florida. And hopefully we're all back to some normal see soon. Thanks, buddy. All right, buddy. Good talking to you. Take care. All right. Cheers. Thanks, Leachy. Thank you. The devil you know, the devil you know, the devil you don't It's better to know the devil you know, the devil you don't
you know.